Good morning again, everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank you for viewing, those of you who are online. So this is day two in our uh, Inner Renewal Retreat uh, schedule. And today we're going to be talking about sharing the light that we have gathered from yesterday's uh, sadhana class that inner light we want to share with the world. So sharing the light through seva today. And also, I want to greet you all this morning and say, you came back. Well, <laughs> you never know. And so, happy Valentine's and Day. And happy Valentine's Day. May Divine Mother's love fill all of your hearts, each of your hearts. And um, thank you for the beautiful little card. I imagine it's from our temple gopis. And I also want to take a moment to thank Shraddha and her crew, who every single day, every single event, they create these beautiful, beautiful altars for us. So thank you. OK, let's begin with a prayer. And then we'll have the music gopis come up. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. O great masters, beloved Swamiji, help us open our hearts to let thy love and joy flow through us. Use us as thy channels to serve others, to serve the world, to serve your great mission, to uplift consciousness. We are thine. Be thou ever ours. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Lord, may we serve you all our days. Ever rejoice to sing your praise. As we together your wisdom seek, charge us with truth whenever we speak. Lord, with joy receive may we as one your bliss achieve as we your guidance with joy receive may we as one your bliss achieve I would like to thank uh, Tim Clark and Lisa Clark, right here, who are our temple mother and father. And everything that flows so beautifully because of them. Thanks, Mom and Dad.
Okay, we better call the Pandavas again and Krishna. for doing it once a year. <laughs> Thank goodness I don't have to play different notes. <laughs> We're going to talk today about seva, and uh, the little handout that you have is drawn from this booklet, and as with virtually everything, there's a nice backstory. <laughs> so we'll start with that backstory. This little booklet, beautiful little booklet. You're not getting this today because <laughs> we don't have enough copies of it. This has been produced by our wonderful team of people in Brindaban. Brindaban is a city in northern India, uh, relatively near Delhi, and it's where Krishna grew up. and. It's also a place in present-day India where thousands of widows from around the country come. In some cases, they have uh, been widowed because their husband has died and they're alone. In other cases, unfortunately, uh, their husband has died and they've been turned out by the family for a variety of reasons, sometimes economic, sometimes superstition, that they were the cause of the husband's death. And in many cases, these uh, poor ladies have no means of support whatsoever. And so they make their way to Brindaban uh, with the understanding that Krishna, who grew up there, will now take care of them. Many of them end up as beggars on the street, but because the thousands and thousands of visitors, pilgrims, come to Brindaban, they're able to sort of get along. Well, seeing this desperate situation some years ago, Ananda started a charitable work there. And we now have three different homes for widows to live in if they have no other place. But much more than just the homes, we serve the widows in the little places where they live. And uh, we go, we make sure that everyone, we're talking about four or 5,000 people now. Everyone is visited at least once a month. They receive free food. They receive vegetables and milk and fresh produce every day, and they receive um, grains and pulses, you know, beans, lentils, those kinds of things, more staples um, once a month. And of course, they receive free medical help. So we have a beautiful, beautiful work in Brindaban. Some years ago, 
Oh, I've got to tell you a little story. It's just, it's too charming. So we were working with these widows and we had these homes set up. But every time we would go there, uh, usually when Davy and I went, we went with our dear friends, Diana, who you saw yesterday, and Pia, who is sponsoring this. And so every time we went there, there was a lady living in a kind of a shipping box. And so we would stop, and Pia, who, of course, speaks the native languages, would try to persuade her that we could take care of her. She could come and, and uh, live with us. And she said, no, no, I, I want to stay here. It's close to my temple. And so time after time, so about the fifth time, uh, she still refused to move. But Pia said, well, isn't there anything that we can do for you? She said, well, you could get me a bigger box. <laughs> and so we got her a bigger box. And this one had a, a separate shelf for her bed and uh, more room. and. Uh, she could stand up and have her things there, and she was quite content. But here's the best part of it. The old box, she rented that out. <laughs> so now she's a landlord. So for those of you in real estate, you can appreciate that spirit. Of yes, <laughs> yes, that, that can-do spirit. Okay, so Davy and I had been visiting Brindaban seeing the wonderful work. We have a staff of about 80 or 90 people, and they're so serviceful and so wonderful. But when we came back from one of these visits, um, we were sitting at breakfast, and this kind of inspiration came. This was five or six years ago, that Ananda, our path, is, Master said, it's a combination of meditation and service. And we have a lot of material uh, about how to meditate. We have courses on it. We have books on it. We have many, many things and support for it. But even though service is half of our path, we don't really have a book or a manual on how to serve. And the inspiration came. I, I ascribe it to Babaji, who is Krishna, in the current incarnation. I ascribe it to him, inspiring, um, because we had just seen this wonderful service in Brindaban, um, inspiring us to write a book on service. And so we started that, just at that restaurant I wrote down about, I basically outlined the book and got started on it, and then life got in the way. You know, so many projects and COVID came and lots of things. Anyway, we hope to get back to that book um, when we go back to India. We're setting aside uh, some time and, and mornings, basically, while we're there to try to write projects. I'll be working on that. Davy will be working on another book. But because I had a kind of a rough outline and some thoughts put down, the ladies at Brindaban took some of those thoughts and they produced a little booklet of kind of key phrases for service. And that's what we're going to be talking about. And you, that's what you'll receive as the handout, just not the booklet. And so 
Each one has a seva principle. The seva principle number one is the divine blesses selfless service. And then there's an affirmation from either master or swami that goes with it and a prayer. And each day, they're using this as a manual now to carry on a course to help train their staff in, uh, in, in the proper attitudes and proper thoughts of, of service. And so uh, you all are a little late to the party, but we're going to start today using those same principles to help us understand the principles of service. Um, Davy and I are not going to exactly take them in order, but we're each going to talk about one, and we're switching off, which is why we're changing the arrangement. And I just wanted to add two little things about Brindaban. It is uh, a very, very sacred place. You know, you go to Italy, and the way you greet people is, ciao, ciao. You go to Brindaban, and the greeting is, rate, rate. That's, that's what people say. That's yeah. how they say hello. Yeah. Radhe, Radhe. Radhe was the chief disciple, the woman disciple of Krishna. And we're also starting, just plant this seed in your brain, a Seva exchange program from here to go and spend maybe a week in Brindaban and serve the widow mothers. It's a very under, um, poor city. The streets aren't good. The sewage isn't the sewage is very present, but um, but there's a sacredness. And Krishna Das is actually going to be going in a few weeks just by himself. It's not a, a big glorious pilgrimage where you stay in fancy hotels. It's it's living the principles that we're going to be talking about today. So keep posted for oh and um, Saiganesh and did you go to they uh, they both went last. Fall, is that correct? And they served in Brindaban as well. So thank you for yeah. coming. So we'll have service pilgrimages um, starting up relatively soon within a year or two. Okay, so principle number one that I'm going to talk about is that seva is a means to dissolve the ego. Now, the whole of the spiritual path is meant to dissolve the ego. Swamiji, one time, we were sitting at breakfast. This was near Brindaban. It was in Gorgon, which is uh, close to Delhi. And he was at breakfast. And we were kind of lamenting how long the spiritual path takes. And, um, you know, that, that we weren't making as fast a progress as we would like to make. And he summed up the whole of the spiritual path between one bite and the next. So visualize Swami sitting at a table, and he had his breakfast there, and we had been whining, and so he... I, I, I correct him there. Maybe you were whining. Okay. Maybe I was whining. Um, but it was a serious question. And so Swami had a, a little food on a fork, and he said, the whole of the spiritual path is meant to dissolve the ego. That is done by longer, deeper meditation and seeing God as the doer in everything, and took his bite. That was it. 
That was the whole lecture, and it was the summation of the spiritual path. So the whole of the whole purpose of the spiritual path, as we were saying yesterday, is to dissolve the ego. Now, the ego isn't a thing. It's a state of consciousness and a state of delusive consciousness. It is that period of time in our, one might call it soul's evolution, although the soul doesn't really evolve. Let's say the consciousness of the expression of the soul evolves. But it's that period of time, out of all of infinity, there is a period of time in which the soul takes on bodies, successive bodies, and it falls under the delusion that that body and the personality that it is in is its actual self. And so the ego is the delusion of separation. So it's not a thing. It's not like we have a soul and we have an ego. We have a soul and that's all we have. We are a soul. And that soul has the delusion of ego for a period of time. Then it, so it comes from God. It has this evolutionary uh, lessening and lessening of the grip of that delusion until finally it realizes that it is a delusion. It dissolves that ego or that sense of separation then the soul merges back into God. So yesterday we talked about how sadhana helps us do that, the, the control especially of the life force and then the release of that life force in the body into the infinite uh, creates the condition necessary for us to go into superconsciousness. And in superconsciousness, in samadhi, we realize that we, are, that we, the soul, are not the body at all. We're the infinite spirit. But then even those who go into samadhi, there are two states of samadhi, sabhikalpa samadhi, which is the only way that you can be in that state of consciousness is to be still with the breath withdrawn from you. And then when, so that means that basically the breath withdraws, it means the life force in the body, the breath stops, the heart stops, the life force exits, but you're still alive because you aren't the body. But when that life force comes back to the body, then you lose that state of consciousness. You can't maintain it. That's called sabhikalpa samadhi. There's a higher state, nirbhikalpa samadhi, where the breath comes back, and you maintain that state and you can act. But from sabhikalpa samadhi, you don't act. You, you, your, you, your energy is withdrawn. We're, we're trying to get there. So our task is, is to get to that state of consciousness. Now, obviously, in meditation, we're working with the withdrawal of that prana and the offering of it up into the infinite. But once we're out of meditation, still we haven't achieved samadhi, but we're on our way to achieving it. That's our goal. And so the rest of the time, 
we should be also doing a kind of a sadhana, and, and that's why seva is important. Master said that very strongly, he said, you will never get there without safe, selfless service, without seva. Very strongly he said that, and he often talked about how we have to do seva, we have to do selfless service. Now, selfless service, the purpose of it is to dissolve the ego. Now we're gonna talk more about different aspects of it, but we should understand that that's, that's the real reality of what we're doing. But selfless service, really proper service, if it's done, should be done serving, if we're serving people, there are many ways to serve, but if we're serving people, we should be serving them in such a way that we're also helping them dissolve the ego. We'll talk about that, but we're, that's a big part of the work in Brindaban is to try to help these widow mothers to also serve others, to also, they have a very strong spiritual life, uh, but to help them on their soul's journey. So everybody is on a soul's journey. In the Bhagavad Gita, at the beginning of the Gita, not at the very beginning, but one of the first major teachings that Krishna gives to Arjuna is called Nishkam Karma, how to serve properly, how to work properly, how to act properly in, in this world. And basically the primary teaching of Nishkam Karma is to act without the desire for the fruits of action. Now, normally that's hard, that's a hard concept. You know, if you're at work, you're getting paid, you're in conflict with your uh, fellow workers or, or not conflict, whatever's going on, hard to remember that you're just doing this in order to dissolve the ego. But in pure service with Nishkam Karma, you can keep that more strongly in mind and keeping it in mind, it serves the purpose of releasing us from ego. So why serve? Because it's going to release you from ego, but it is also going to allow you to be a channel of blessing that the masters, God flowing through you, so you become a channel of blessing to other people. And that, that desire to serve takes the life force that is within you that could otherwise go in directions that would increase the ego, but it takes that life force and it directs it in ways that gradually dissolves layer by layer the veils of ego that keep us from seeing who we really are. So we're going to move quickly along now and try to cover most of the points on this, uh, from this little booklet. The principle that I'm going to start with is we are channels for the divine to serve through us. And again, Swami's advice, seeing God as the doer and longer, deeper meditation and seeing God as the doer. Well, what does that mean? You've probably all heard that phrase before. But what does it really mean to see God as the doer? Well, 
the more we can, before we begin to serve, feel that there's a divine flow coming through us, feel that it's not just us doing it, but we're sustained by a supporting consciousness underneath us. I had a very powerful experience with this personally. The very first big public talk Swami asked us to do, he was giving a, a big program in San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts, and there were six or 700 people, maybe more. And he was, it was a weekend program. And then Saturday night, he said to us, I want the two of you, Jyotish and Davy, to speak at Sunday service. Well, I had given little classes before to a handful of people, but nothing on this scale. And I just froze. I thought, oh, this is way more than I can do. And then he said, well, think about it. Yeah, I mean, we didn't say no. We said, sure, Swami. And, um, <laughs> Then, so that night we were, he told us what the topic was and we were thinking about it. And then he said, you just sit in the front row and I'll call you when to come up. Well, you can imagine, I, well, maybe, I mean, I was sitting there and the whole time to my uh, shame, I, my mantra was, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, which was true. But then he was, I could tell he was winding up his talk and his eyes started to come over to me and I felt like a physical force, like him reaching out his hand. And he, said, and he just said, be open, I'll do it through you. And that's what happened. I got up there, I wasn't, we both came up, and there's a photo of it somewhere, I was trying to find it, but I couldn't find it, um, of us standing there giving the talk and Swami's over to the side. But it was such a clear feeling that I am not doing this. The clarity, the, uh, the thoughts, the illustrations, all of it. And you know, from that moment, I have never really been nervous about public speaking. But what's the point there? If we think God's the doer, to step out of your comfort zone. Maybe you don't know how to fix that computer. Maybe you don't know how to give an answer to this troubled person or whatever it might be. But if you just stop and say, God, I want to be your instrument. I want to help people. I want to find the answer. And if you step out of your comfort zone, if you're in your comfort zone, I know how to do this. This is easy for me. You will never feel that God is the doer. But it's, for example, when you're asked to sing a solo and you haven't really rehearsed and there you have to do it, you just say, God, you sing through me. Swami, you sing through me. And in every little instance in life, if you can just let challenge yourself and then just say, okay, you take over at this point. And it, the more you do this, the more you feel God's presence with you, acting through you in little ways and in big ways. And then, um, you know, our lives, as Jyotish said, Master said our path was a combination of meditation and service. But remember, lest you think, well, it's just all about, you know, metaphysical experiences. You all know autobiography. What happened in the chapter my experience in, and experience in cosmic consciousness. Soon as that experience was over, what did Sri Yukteswar said? Go get a broom. We have to sweep the porch. There's much work to be done. And that's the point. 
We may go very deep and very, we may have very deep and expanded experiences in meditation. But in this life, Master's mission is to bring light into the world. And that's the core of our seva, and it's central to our path at this time. Maybe in the future we'll all be in the Himalayas meditating all the time, and that'll be it. Will that be a better life? Not necessarily. It's just what will be appropriate at that time. And so <clears throat> to look at your life and say, what's the next step for me? How can I move it forward? How can I always see that God's the doer? And just to pause, I'm looking around, and I see a lot of our wonderful young members, residents here. Almost every one of them have been asked to take on a job that they didn't think they could do, that seemed way beyond their scope, but they said yes, and God has worked through them. So thank you all. Next principle I'll talk about is that the attitude with which we serve is more important than the type of service that we do. So it doesn't really matter very much what we do because we're going to be called on to do a lot of different tasks in any one lifetime. And in fact, that's good because if we do only one thing and become identified as I am a billionaire, or I am a uh, surgeon, or whatever, if we become identified with the, the thing that we do, it's just another kind of self-definition. Swami defined the ego as a bundle of self-definitions. So, so if you self-identify with the type of service that you do, it's just another bundle, of, another arrow in that bundle of self-definitions. So it's good, in fact, to do different kinds of service. It's also good to do service that you don't necessarily deem as being appropriate to you. So because why isn't it appropriate to you? Because you have some bundle in your self-definition that thinks you're above doing this kind of work. I wasn't, I didn't come here to dig ditches. You know, there was a story of, that Swami tells about um, a group of, of the young men, the monks working with Master, and they were having him uh, having the young men uh, dig out a swimming pool and then pour the concrete for it. And the pour for the concrete, because it had to be done all in one single pour so there weren't any seams, uh, took almost 24 hours. Anyway, many, many hours. And everybody was working very willingly except one young man. And he said, I didn't come to this ashram to pour concrete. I came here to find God. Well, of all of them, who left? The person with the bad attitude. So the attitude with which we do something is the complete story, really. It isn't part of it. It's it really the type of service is not important at all. Of course we want to make our service effective, but I'm talking about from the ego standpoint, we, we should not be concerned with the type. 
of service. Now, what are the proper attitudes of, of service? First of all, this being Valentine's Day, um, two of our members here, um, Om, Om Prakash and, and Prem Shanti, do a yearly um, catalog or calendar of different sayings from the autobiography of a yogi. It's a wonderful thing to have. Today, being Valentine's Day, the quote was that God is pure love and that this world is, is manifested out of that love and that everything that happens to us is an act of that love from God. Well, the first and most important of all of attitudes of service is that it should be done with love. You should try to act. Love can be expressed in many different ways uh, and, and appropriately so. So whatever the expression of love and, and its proper expression during that part of service, sometimes it's kindness. Sometimes it's compassion. Sometimes it's friendship. Sometimes it's joy. However you want to express it, but always, whatever you're doing, try to feel that you are a channel for God's love to accomplish whatever that is. So love is the single most important thing, most important attitude in service. A positive mind and positive energy is very important in service. If you're really, if you're working, and, and the real work, if you're serving people or individuals, if the real work is not just to feed their body, but is to uplift their consciousness, then you have to have an uplifted consciousness in order to channel that. And so a positive mind, a positive energy, and, and as we serve with that, it naturally lifts people up until the outward service is hardly necessary at all. We had a wonderful member here, Seva, who passed away a little more than a year ago. Swami gave her the name Seva because she was constantly serving. And as she got older, her outward service became less and less uh, dynamic, one might say. But she didn't have to do anything in order to serve. She would come to every event. She and another friend, Gloria, would generally sit about where Deva Leela is sitting there. And she just beamed love, beamed positivity. And, and it was just beautiful just being in her presence. She was serving you. The way she passed away, she was volunteering at the um, little boutique at the Shrine of the Masters. She finished her work Sunday afternoon about 4 o'clock, went home, told her friend Gloria they'd been serving together. I, I feel a little uh, upset in my stomach. Could you get me uh, some bubbly water? Gloria came back, gave it to her. She took a sip or two, fell down, passed out. She had had a heart attack and passed just like that, but two hours after serving. So her whole life was service, but she transformed this community and transformed anyone around her. So what we do is not important. It is the vibration 
with which we do it and the attitudes of humility and kindness and joy and positivity and, as I said, above all, love. So the principle I'm going to talk about now is reflective of what Jyotish said, but it's slightly different. Serving with willingness, joy, and enthusiasm increases energy and magnetism. When we serve with the thought, God, I'm doing this for you, we get filled with energy. It doesn't matter what we're doing. And the more we're enthusiastic and joyful about it, the more our energy builds, and then we take that energy and we refine it in meditation. So one feeds the other. But in the, I wanted to share a story with you. In the early years of Ananda, I was living up at the meditation retreat, serving on the staff there. In those days, uh, when technology has advanced so quickly. I mean, when, when we talk about we didn't have computers, we didn't even have a telephone up there, and yet we had a guest program going on. We never knew who was coming. I mean, there was no way. I mean, they, people would mail in forms, but you know, half the time they didn't arrive. So we were having a big event, Spiritual Renewal Week, up there, and I was working at registering people, and it was Sunday. And so people were coming, and we didn't know who was coming and where we were going to house them or anything. But we had a storeroom where we had uh, sleeping bags and pads that people could sleep on. I, I don't think they ever were washed. But anyway, they were there, <laughs> and we would give them to people as they came. And so this, I was serving at the desk, and I was just feeling very joyful. And, oh, hello, we didn't know you were coming. OK, here's a sleeping bag and a pad. You can go out, and there's a tent, or there's a platform. There's a nice tree. You can sleep under the tree. <laughs> and so finally, it was, it was after dinner. It was about 10 o'clock, and I was locking up the office. And I saw some car headlights pull up, and this man arrived. Hi, I'm here for Spiritual Renewal Week. We had given away every blanket, every sleeping bag, every pad. But I was just so filled with energy. I said, just wait a minute. I'll get you set up. And I ran back to my trailer, and I got um, my little pad and my little sleeping bag. And I didn't tell them, tell the man they were mine. I said, here, you can use these. And that night, I just I had my little wooden plank bed and a little sheet over me, and that was that. But the next morning, and nobody knew about it. I didn't tell anybody. The next morning, Swami, Monday morning, Swami was giving the class. Hi, Neha, welcome. So nice to see you. Um, <laughs> the next morning, Swami is coming in to give the class. He walks over to me very quickly, takes my hand. He said, now you're getting the idea. Give it everything you've got with joy. He knew. I didn't tell him. But he, somehow he knew. And so the more we can just say willingly, joyfully, whatever you ask. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says to Arjuna, you who have overcome the carping spirit. It's so important. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. This is too hard. This, that's not my job. Whatever's, not even whatever's asked. Whatever you see that needs to be done, you do it, and you do it with joy. And then there's that divine flow. But it's, if the mind is analyzing, criticizing, they didn't make the right decision, I know better than them, that constant carping spirit eats you up inside and destroys your joy. 
But if you can just relate to everyone with joy and support and enthusiasm, and whatever you do, bring that energy, then you begin to, as Swami said, now you're getting the idea. And that was a, a beautiful moment in my life. The next one is serve to uplift consciousness. So as we do the healing prayers generally as, uh, as we end meditations, we usually rub our hands and, and ask Divine Mother or we state, uh, Divine Mother, you're omnipresent, uh, manifest thy healing energies in all bodies, minds, and souls. And so when we serve, the mind has the tendency to be outward, and therefore we think we're serving the bodies, or we're serving the physical thing, or we're putting flowers on an altar because flowers are real and the altar needs flowers. But what we're really trying to do is we're trying to use that energy flow to uplift consciousness. And so when we serve people, that's also why the attitude with which we serve is more important than the service, because our attitudes will either be those that uplift people, or they will be those that set a bad example to people. So at any rate, this point is that um, in our service, it's very, very important to keep our mind and our goal on the fact that we're serving in order to uplift consciousness. Now, if we really have our concentration on the people that we're serving, then we're automatically going to be uplifting our own consciousness. But it's one of those catch-22 things where as soon as we think, oh, I'm uplifting my consciousness by this service, then service descends to the level of merchant service. I'll do this, I get this back, I get uplifted consciousness back, even on the subtle plane, see? So the concentration on our service has to be outward, us as a channel for energy to flow through, but as soon as we look at ourselves as the channel or have desires that we benefit as the channel, then that desire separates us and brings us back into ego. So as we serve, we need to try to serve in such a way that we're concentrated on the people that we're serving or the tasks that we're serving, and that we're trying to do that in such a way that it uplifts consciousness. So it doesn't have to be a person that we're serving. Every year we have a couple of work days at Ananda Village. The, in the spring we have one we, around uh, Rajasi Janakananda's birthday, Master's Most Advanced Disciple. We call it Rajasi Day. And maybe 150 people come and we all joyfully serve together. Think over the years, that has built the community. That single yearly day of service has built many of the beautiful things that we see around here. But the concentration is not necessarily on people, but we plant flowers, that uplifts consciousness. We paint buildings, that uplifts consciousness. For the first five years, mainly we hauled away junk. That uplifted consciousness.
So whatever we're doing, we need to uplift consciousness. And I'll just end this section by saying there's also another kind of service that we can do in order to uplift consciousness. And that is to allow people to serve us. Because the cycle needs to be completed. And so if somebody offers to serve you or if you need, if you're ill or need service, gratefully accept that and accept the desire of other people to serve as Divine Mother trying to help you in whatever need you have. But because she is working through a channel, that channel is going to be uplifted in their consciousness by their service. So we actually serve others by, by gratefully and thankfully and kindly accepting service. So if somebody wants to give you something, don't push them away. We had uh, somebody here who had that tendency. She was trying to carry a big box of, of I think, papers that had been collated. And somebody came and said, oh, that looks kind of heavy. Can I help you? Said, no, no, I can do it myself. Two steps, and she dropped it. And they were all over the, the ground. But, and she caught herself. She said, I need to learn to accept help when it's offered. So that completion of a cycle also helps to uplift consciousness. But the point of this particular section is keep, the, keep our focus on the upliftment of consciousness, not on the thing itself. Moving right along, I'm going to talk about offer the fruits of service back to the divine for which it comes. So in other words, don't take credit for your successes or your failures. It's a very important thing. If I mean, we all have varying degrees of success or failure in what we do. And just say, God, you did this through me. And with all sincerity, not... Uh, you know, now kind of a display. Swami said when people would touch Master's feet, which is, a, you know, a, a sign of respect, particularly in India, he would always go like this. You know, I offer your devotion and your reverence to God. And once Swami said, he, after he was giving a talk as a young person, young minister, he, uh, some person in the audience came and said, oh, that was such a wonderful, wonderful talk. And he just said with humility, God is the doer, not wanting to take any credit. And she said, oh, really? <laughs> Meaning I knew it was good. I didn't know it was that good. But, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're sharing spiritual teachings, put people put you in a certain category. And um, it, it it doesn't necessarily help you if you're if you're taking that praise or that feeling of you know like well you're special to yourself and uh, in the early years, I think Swami, looking back in our time with Swami, I see how he was always training us. I didn't see it at the time, but he was always training, and very often on Sunday morning at about nine o'clock. 
Jyotish and I would just kind of sit by the phone because the phone would ring and it would be Swami. And he would say, you know, I'm not feeling too well today. Can you give Sunday service? Of course, Swami, of course, Swami. So we would always say yes, but it happened quite frequently. And so we, we sometimes thought, let's unplug the phone at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. And then we were in a, uh, attending an interfaith council breakfast of ministers of all different faiths and priests and rabbis in Grass Valley, the local town. And so it was a breakfast, and I was sitting next to this woman who was a fundamental Christian and kind of a little bit pompous. And she looked at me and she said, when did you get the call? And I couldn't help it. I said, usually about 9 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's just not to take yourself seriously. And that's the point of service. If you take it, oh, I'm serving and God's flowing through me and I have the right attitude, you're missing the point. Just don't take credit for anything. And if you blow it, you just say, oh, boy, that was a disaster. And you walk away. But everything, just to say, God's the doer, not me. I'm not taking credit for it. And then everything becomes very sweet and very easy. And you don't, you know, it, it's spiritual, uh, it's a spiritual detriment. Even if you have a wonderful meditation, to think, oh, I had a good meditation. I can guarantee you from my own experience, as soon as you think that, you won't have good meditations for a while because you're not taking it right. But if you have a good meditation and you just say, thank you, God, I felt your presence. That was a, a gift. Then you build on that. So working in a way that you don't take credit for anything you do. And okay, I'll, tell, I'll tell that story the next point. Can we wait? Can we wait? They won't listen. They won't listen to me. They'll be waiting for me. I think so. George Burns and Gracie Allen, you know. One of the most beautiful examples of humble, selfless service that I have witnessed in my life in over decades was Swami's cook and housekeeper, Leela. And she was the most amazing person, so humble. So, I mean, all she did was cook and clean and wash and iron his clothes. She traveled with him. But every meal, and I watched her, every meal was beautiful and well-presented and things he liked and things that were good for his body. And you think, well, okay, why is that so hard? She did this all over the world. Like if they had just flown into India, they'd get settled in, in, their, in his house. And so I would say, what's for dinner, Leela? They just arrived. But she would have to plan ahead and tell people what to have, what food to have ready, that she could cook a meal for him. And one time we were in Assisi, and he invited us all in the afternoon to go into town for tea. And Leela kind of paused because she knew she wouldn't be back in time to cook dinner, but she planned it. So she 
made something ahead of time. So we get home, it's right before dinner, and Leela rushes into the kitchen. I said, what are you doing? She said, well, it's nice to have, and she puts on her apron, it's nice to have a nice fragrance in the air when you're eating. So she was sauteing herbs. They weren't gonna be used for anything, but just to have the fragrance of fresh basil and sage in the room. I mean, that kind of service, and with utter joy, Lila passed away 2012, the year before Swamiji, and he spoke at her memorial service, and he said, through her service, her mind and her heart became absolutely pure and free, just through cooking and cleaning and ironing clothes. So I, I wanted to share with you that little story about Lila. There's a beautiful story also that Swami often told about a young man who goes to an ashram for training and the master accepts him. And um, so the young man is there and the master says, now I want you to take on the job of going into the forest and gathering the firewood that, that we need for the cooking and in the winter for the heating of the ashram. And so the young man does this and just that's his, that's his means of service, so he keeps doing it. And one day he's carrying a load of firewood back and his beard, or, or his, some hairs from his, uh, hairs on his head, get caught in, in between two things and get pulled out and he looks and they've turned white. And he said, I came here as a young man. This very touching story to me. I came here as a young man, and I've wasted my whole time here. All I've done is gather firewood. Began to weep. The master came out and caught the tears, he said. Don't you know that if the tears of one such as you would fall, there would be famine for seven years? Catches those tears and touches him and he goes into samadhi. So I find it very touching because we think that the path is one way, but what is the path? The dissolving of the ego. That's all the path is, and there are many ways to get there. So the point I'm going to talk about is attuning to the Supreme gives power to your service. So Master said that his highest prayer, he actually said two highest prayers, but both of them are pertinent. Uh, one is that, Lord, reveal thyself to me that I may reveal thee to others. So give me enlightenment that I may share with others. And the second one, he said, is I will reason, I will will, I will act, but guide thou my reason, will, and activity to the right path in everything. So that's a prayer of attunement to, to stop. So whenever we're doing anything, the first thing that we should do is to stop, get centered, and ask that the divine guide us and help us as we do that task. We had the former manager here, 
Nityananda had a big picture of Master right on the wall, just behind his chair in, in his office. He said, whenever I get stuck, whenever I didn't know what to do, I'd just turn like this and I'd say, what should I do, Master? And immediately, some idea would come. So tuning in to what the divine wants to do will give power to your service and it will give answers to you that you couldn't arrive at by your mental, by your logical mind. One time in the very early years, uh, we had started an incense and oil business and I needed to go, by this time we were now using, um, they call them punk, punk sticks. They were the sticks for fireworks that you light one end and it glows and then you can light a firecracker safely. We were using those uh, and we would scent them for making the incense product that we made. And we had run out of supplies and I needed to go down, so I went down. There was this big warehouse in Oakland and um, I, I went there, but it was just like a week or two weeks after the 4th of July. And so their, their big, um, big season had ended, a big fireworks place. Their season had ended, nobody was there except a janitor. And this huge warehouse, think of a Costco-sized warehouse. And so he said, I don't know, it says we're supposed to have a couple of boxes of them here, but I, I got no idea where they are. And so I, I said, well, can I take a look? And um, went in, and hundreds and hundreds of basically identical boxes, <laughs> same size, row after row of them. And all of a sudden, in my mind said, you know, they came with a yellow strap. There are two boxes way over there with yellow straps. Ask him to go check those. And sure enough, those were the two remaining boxes of these punk sticks and the supplies we needed. Now, with my logical mind, I would never have arrived there. It was just that I stopped. I should have said, I stopped and I said, Master, did you really want me to come all this way with, with no result? And as soon as I said that, that's when the thought came into my mind. So, whatever you're doing, tune in to the divine because that is where the power comes from. And by doing that, also, you transform the consciousness from thinking that you're the doer to realizing that it's really the divine that is the doer acting through you. I say with great, I won't say pride, but uh, <laughs> what's the word? Um, it just fond memories that I was one of the workers in Jotisha's incense factory and I would package those little sticks of incense and we'd mail them out and those were very fun days. And they still are very fun days. So the point that I'm going to focus on now and it was reflecting of what Jotish said is the principle meditate before you serve. And the principle behind this is to get calm, to get centered. Frenetic activity is not service. 
Master said you should be calmly active and actively calm. I know here at the Expanding Light, our Karma Yoga program, they always start each day of service, and I expect it's true with, with the Seva Yoga program at the meditation retreat, but they started with a period of prayer, affirmation, reflecting on the teachings. But calm activity, you'll get so much more done then when you're running around frantically trying to, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do that, and then all the little pieces fall between the cracks. I, but to approach whatever we're doing, even if you don't have time to meditate, just take, a, if you have something you're trying to accomplish, some area of service, take a few breaths. Just get centered, get centered, and then begin acting. And then you will, everything we've been talking about, then the right attitude is there, then the energy is there, then the feeling that God is the doer is there. And Master said, to the extent that, he said this in the chapter in Cosmic Consciousness, to the extent that I was, after that experience, whenever I would recall that deep interiorized state to mind, I would always be guided to the right activity in all things, even in the littlest detail. So to start from that place of calmness. Again, there was a, a wonderful story I'll share from my days at the meditation retreat. I worked in the kitchen in those days. I was one of the, the cooks. But on Thursdays at that time, everybody would be in silence and fast, the whole, every, everybody who lived there. So the kitchen was shut down, and the, uh, certain people would drive into town and get supplies, groceries, because we didn't have, the kitchen was pretty empty. So I was, it was a Thursday, and I was in silence and fasting, but I walked by, I came up to get something from the office, and Swami had just arrived with two people. They happened to be Jyotish and Seva. And he said, oh, we're going to have a meeting with the, um, the landowners in the area. They call it the Bald Mountain Association. And I've invited them all to lunch. And I said, but Swami, there is no lunch today. So he looked at me and said, oh, could you make lunch for about 20 people? I said, of course, Swamiji. And I, but I knew there wasn't anything in the kitchen because it was all, they were getting supplies. So I went in. But when Swami asked you to do something, he gave you the power to do it too, just as that talk. And so I went into, the, it was really the most remarkable cooking experience I've ever had. There was exactly the amount I needed of everything and no more. So by the time I was done, there was nothing in the kitchen. But this beautiful meal turned out, and I just was very calm. And, and he said, oh, this was lovely. Thank you very much. And, but it, it just, because I approached it, not frenetically, but just calmly, what can we do here? And it all, even the little details, oh, maybe I'll add that to it because this is sort of well, not too much. And everything just turned out beautifully. And so to begin any project you take, you know, this beautiful, magnificent temple of light in which we are enjoying. And again, we're talking about spreading the light. And this temple is an example of, a living example of that. And the people who designed it and built it are sitting here in the room with us. 
And they just said, and it's so beautifully, they said, it never felt like we were doing this. We would meditate, and the ideas for the design and the construction, the ability to manifest it all, coming in a very telescoped way because we had the 50th anniversary celebration. They said it all just fell into place. But it, that's part of the beauty of this temple, is the consciousness with which it was built. Calmness, attunement, self-offering, and the feeling that God is the doer. Now just to reiterate, because we're going through these principles very quickly, what they're doing in Brindaban is that they're taking one of these principles each month and they study them and they talk about them and then they practice them. So um, whatever they're doing, they, they try to work with that and then they consciously reinforce that. We have a wonderful, we call it karma yoga program here and um, I think most of you know about it. Many of you have participated in it. But uh, for every day, they get together, they meditate together briefly. They talk about some principle of service, of karma yoga, and then they try to apply that while they're, while they're doing whatever they're doing. And it's an absolutely wonderful, for many people, life-changing experience to be able to work that way. But just because we're going through these quickly, don't kind of, um, I, I don't know, think that you don't need to think about them or apply them. They're very important uh, principles. So the next principle is seva and satsang with other sevakas is important. So working not just in isolation, but working with others and working with others not only increases the power of what you're able to accomplish. Imagine just, I don't know, uh, you have five people and they're each trying to build a little cabin here, uh, five carpenters. And so the first carpenter gets so far and he thinks, well, I need, I need some sheetrock nails. So he has to drive to town and get sheetrock nails and he comes back. Carpenter number two is over there, and he says, well, I, I need uh, some two-by-fours. So he drives to town to get the two-by-fours, and he comes back, and so it goes on and on. Isn't it better for the five of them to be working together, and they need sheetrock nails, and they need lumber, and they need this and they that, need that, and one of them drives to town and gets it all while the others are still working. So... Efficiency, there's a point in here about working with efficiency, but we can accomplish a lot more when we serve with others. But that's the least of it. Serving with others reinforces, that's the power of community, is that we reinforce and uplift each other so we keep our consciousness high. And it also trains us in qualities such as harmony, and communication that are needed in order to uh, be able to work together. And so it's important not just to work alone and to feel that that's your service. Some of that, of course, is important to do. Uh, concentrated 
uh, service of that nature is very important. But also to work with others is very helpful and very important. Okay. So what I'm going to talk about is make SEVA practical and use efficient methods. Another way of saying this is do whatever task at hand as well as you can. I often have this inner uh, little game that I play. If I'm doing anything, writing or editing or cooking or cleaning, if ever the thought comes into my mind, it's good enough. And I pause and I say, no, it's not. <laughs> you know when it's good enough. You know when you say, okay, that soup tastes just right. Okay, that room looks clean. But when you say, oh, it's good enough, then your energy drops. And so you want to do things with a spirit, not with tension, but with a spirit of doing the best that you can. I remember in the, I think it was the uh, second summer I was here, at that time where most of you know Master's Market, it was a little office then, and I was asked to uh, write letters to people who were inquiring about the community, and we just had typewriters in those days. I wasn't very good at typing, and I made a lot of mistakes, and in those days, there, you had something called whiteout, and you can you know, go like that and erase over your mistakes and type, and oh no, I still made a mistake, you know, and it was, and one day Swami walked in, and he looked at this letter I was working on, and he said, you can't send that out. <laughs> And it was a mess. And I real, he, what he was saying was, just like building this temple, everything we do shall be done with the highest consciousness with which we are capable, whatever it is. You know, it's uh, the beautiful tulip gardens, which will be blossoming in April. Every single year, our head gardeners, Jivda and Netri, plan out those gardens in a new way every year. They could just, you know, put, put it on automatic and order the same bulbs and plant them. They're always creating new combinations to make it beautiful and interesting. And that's why people come back year after year, because it's different and beautiful. So whatever you're doing, whatever it may be, just try to say, how can I bring this to the highest possible expression? And sometimes it's, it's challenging. Some years ago, uh, at that time, the children in the Ananda Junior High and High School would go to uh, Mexico to spend two weeks in serving in an orphanage. And, uh, and they would, different adults would go to accompany them. And one year I went with Ridaya and uh, Hashi and Irene and um, we had a wonderful time, wonderful time. But I remember once they all went, uh, Irene and Ridaya and Hashi, there was a, a it was, the orphanage was run by, there were like, I think 200 children, there was one priest and two nuns, and that was it, and it ran beautifully. They all took care of each other. It was really quite a remarkable experience. But our, my free, three friends wanted to go to the church for mass that day. And I said, okay. And we were helping cook in the kitchen. I said, I'll stay. 
There was one cook, too, this little old Mexican lady who didn't speak English. And so she kind of pointed me into this room. And it was this little dark room with one little light bulb hanging. And there was this one burner on the floor like that in this huge pot of beans. And she kind of motioned me, OK, you stir the beans. And so uh, because if you don't stir them, they'll burn. And there won't be food for the kids. So I was doing that and trying to do it as well as I could. And then at a certain point, I straightened up and I put my hand back on the counter behind me and I felt something run on my arm and I turned around, cockroaches, cockroaches everywhere. <laughs> but I just kept stirring and honestly, at a certain point, tears just started pouring down my cheek because I just thought, God, I am trying to, everything we've been talking about, willing, enthusiastic, joyful, the best job I could, and in that dark little room with this vat of pinto beans boiling, cockroaches crawling everywhere, I felt so much joy. And I felt so blessed to be able to give to life the best that I had. So whatever you're doing, just nothing's unimportant. Nothing. Not in God's eyes. In the Gita, it says, even a leaf, if offered with devotion, I will receive. So offer that leaf, whatever your role in life is, offer that leaf with devotion, and God himself will come and receive it. So the next one is pray for those whom you serve and encourage them to pray for others. And so it's very, very important to maintain uh, high spiritual consciousness in whatever is happening. Well, yesterday when we left, Dion looked at me with kind of those puppy dog eyes. He said, you didn't tell a joke. <laughs> so I'm going to tell a joke about keeping consciousness high and, and spiritual. And so this joke, many in the community have heard it, but a lot of visitors here, so you haven't heard it. We were told this joke by a Sikh in India, and it's about a, a group of Sikhs who are living right near, uh, next to the Vatican. And the cardinals come to the Pope, and they say, Pope, Pope, you have to... I don't think they really say Pope, Pope, do they? <laughs> your eminence, your eminence. We don't know anything about these people. They could be terrorists. They could be, they, they, they could be dangerous. They certainly aren't Christians. You have to boot them out. And the Pope said, well, I don't think it's very nice to just boot them out arbitrarily. He said, but you've got to get rid of them. He said, well, OK, I've got an idea. I'll challenge them to a theological debate. And if I win, they have to leave. And of course I'm going to win. And so the group of Sikhs comes in, and their leader comes forth, and they kind of explain this. And the leader said, well, how can we debate? He said, I speak Punjabi. You speak Italian. And we can't debate. And the pope says, well, you're right. We'll do it in sign language. And so Sikh says, well, OK. So now the theological debate begins, and the pope goes, and the Sikh immediately goes, three. And the Pope's kind of surprised by this. But 
Then he goes on and he goes like this. And the Sikh immediately goes like this. And now the Pope is not only surprised, but impressed and shocked. And finally, the Pope brings out the Holy of Holies, the wine and the uh, sacred bread for the uh, communion service, which represents the, the blood and the body of Christ given in sacrifice to all of mankind. And the Sikh reaches in his bag and pulls out an apple and takes a bite. And now the Pope is shocked and says, well, clearly you're, you're very wise and very learned and you've won this theological debate. And the cardinals come up and say, Pope, Pope, uh, your eminence, sorry. <laughs> your eminence, your eminence, we don't understand what happened. And the Pope said, I said that God is one and there's only one God. But the Sikh immediately said, yes, but there's the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Of course, he's right. And then I said, God is everywhere in the entire universe. He has created everything. And the Sikh reminded me, yes, that's true, true, but he is also right here, right on the spot where we stand. Don't forget that. Don't think of him as distant. And then I brought out the Holy of Holies, and he brought out an apple reminding me of the story of the Garden of Eden and the original sin without which the, the sacrifice of Jesus would not have been necessary. Obviously, he's very learned. He knows our teachings, and he's also very wise because he answered so quickly. And they have the right to stay here. Uh, cardinals accept that. So the Sikhs, too, the band of followers, they don't know what happened. And so they come to their leader and they say, what, what happened? And the Sikh said, I don't know. I think the guy's a little crazy. <laughs> he said, we have to have a big argument. And if you win the argument, then you can stay. And if you don't win the argument, you have to leave. So he said, I'm giving you one day and you're going to have to be out. And I said, no, we need at least three days. <laughs> and then he said, but we've got you surrounded. And I said, I don't care. We're staying right here. <laughs> and then he started to eat his lunch. So I started to eat my lunch. <laughs> and then, I don't know, the guy's crazy. He let us stay. <laughs> so. That is my little lecture on pray for those whom you serve and encourage them to pray for, you, for others. Okay, so the very last point, and we're ending good timing. Um, see Divine Mother in those that you serve. So this is so important, and to not just serve at people, but offer. Your service should be offering to the, to the divine in them. See the highest in them. Even if they're foolish or in error or someone that you've had a difficult time with, just serve because God loves them and you serve that highest in them. And realize that 
reach that love. There's the beautiful story from the life of St. Francis, <clears throat> who was walking along the countryside, and he had a, an anathema about lepers, which were common in those days. And he's walking down a little, wandering through the countryside, and he sees approaching him a man horribly afflicted with leprosy, and his face is all eaten away and horrible, and his nose is gone, and half of his face is gone. And Francis's first instinct is to run away. And then he says, no, God's in that, that leper as well. And he approaches him, and he takes him, and he embraces him. And in that moment, the leper was transformed, and he found in his arms he was embracing Christ. And if we approach everyone we meet in that way, I had an interesting experience myself along these lines where I wrote about it in a recent blog where, again, this was when I was living before Jyotish and I were married. I was living alone in a little trailer. And in those days, we had no means of communication, no phones, no cell phones. So, you know, if anything happened, you were on your own. And we all lived quite distant from each other. And one night, it was quite a stormy night outside, raining and windy, and the little trailer was kind of shuddering. And I was at home with the kerosene lamp, which I had, and I was reading the Bible. And all of a sudden, there's this pounding on my door. And I thought, in the night, it's dark. I thought, who could this be in the middle of the night? And I very tentatively opened the door, and there was a strange man standing there. He said, can I come in? And I thought, oh, Lord. <laughs> but I never felt, I, I, I instinctively felt there's something going on here that it's not what the eyes see. So I said, yes, come in, sit down. He said, I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? And I had a little food, and I gave it to him. And then he finished, and he said, do you have anything to drink? And I gave him some water, is all I had. And then he got sort of calming down. Then he pulled up his sleeve, and he said, I have these really bad sores on my arm. And he showed me, and indeed, he had these big sores on his arm. I don't know what it was. And then he said, I like it here. And I thought, OK. <laughs> but again, I never felt frightened. I always thought, there's something else going on here. And then he just said, I have to go now. And he just got up and left. And then I was sort of stunned for a while. Then I opened the Bible to continue reading. And of course, it was the passage. And I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. And I had no home, and you took me in. And the people said to Christ, Lord, when did we do this? And he said, when you did this to the least of my little ones, you did it unto me. So remember, in our service, to see past the form of the foolish, the wise, the ill, the <laughs> decrepit, the diseased, and to just see the God in that person. We have a beautiful clinic up the road run by Dr. Peter and his wife, Patricia. And I, in my estimation, those two people are saints. The constant, constant service that they give to anyone in need. And Peter said, my, he was talking recently, and he said, whenever I need to take a break, and believe me, they work long, long hours and days un, unrelentingly. He said, when I need to be, take a break, 
I go sit in the corner of the clinic and watch the rest of the staff being kind to others. And that's how I get rejuvenated. And so what are they doing? They're seeing the God in all those people that come in. And so for each of us in our service, remember ultimately when we do it to the least of these little ones, we do it to God. And in that way, our service becomes a source of bringing light and God's presence into the world. So we'll close now, and we'll take a little break. But I want to, one announcement that I failed to mention. Tomorrow we're going to be giving a class on self-offering and how through self-offering to experience God's light. And we're going to end tomorrow's class with a fire ceremony. So we'd like each of you between now and the end of class tomorrow to think of some qualities that you would want of yourself that you'd like to leave behind, that you would like to offer into the fire that will have the ceremony. And I think what we'll do, if you want to write them down on a little piece of paper, you can, or just have them in your mind. And afterwards, we can't burn in the temple because of smoke alarms, but afterwards we will burn them all and, and let, offer them to God. So think of things that self-offering, both things you'd like to leave behind and self-offering things you'd like to give more completely. And we'll end these three classes with that ceremony. And also <laughs> desires that you may have. Usually in our fire ceremony, first we offer ghee, represents the purified devotion of the heart. You make ghee by uh, taking butter and you slowly melt it, and the solids um, milk solids come to the surface and you scoop them out and throw them away. That represents the desires that are keeping us from being pure and offering ourselves to God. So think of, think of those desires that maybe have risen to the surface of your mind and don't need to be part of your life anymore that you'd like to scoop out and throw away. So desires that you have Maybe there are also aversions, like aversions to a leper. Not likely in this crowd, but you understand the principle. And then also the offering of rice into the fire, which we do typically, represents seeds of past karma or tendencies. So think of desires that you would like to be rid of, patterns of desires, and think of tendencies that you would like to be transformed. Write both of those down on a paper, and, and then we will burn those. Okay, so we'll take a little break now, and then we'll come back for meditation. And remember to leave quietly. Don't and remember uh, oh, pick up the, on your the, way out. 